Did you hit Lady Stoneheart? No. You can't hit Lady Stoneheart. I know. She will fuck your shit up. <laughs> that is the only fretless Fender Mustang Lady Stoneheart bass in existence. I know. Helped Mod Podge it. <laughs> are you, are you going to make it? I'm going to make it. Let's do this It's thing. good. Everything's good. Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome back. Episode 54, where we will be covering Chapter 7 of The Republic of Thieves and the interludes that surround it. It's a good way of describing this section. Trying to practice my economy of phrase. And in this book, we have interludes and intersects. Oh, we got all the inters. Crazy time. Why don't you tell us who, we, who you are? My name is Chad. I am the Duke. Who are you? I'm Liz. I'm the Duchess. What are you doing in my house? Bearing so. your children. Oh, yes. That's fine. Other than that, we're doing a podcast. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's great. Would you like to hear our spoiler policy? I would love it. Our spoiler policy is very simply that Liz has read these books several times and knows all about it. She can't possibly be spoiled. But I, on the other hand, am reading them for the first time. So don't spoil me, and I won't spoil you. We're not going to talk about anything that follows the first interlude in part three. Correct. And on our next book club, we are going to read chapter eight, the interlude following it, chapter nine, and the interlude following that. So we'll start with chapter eight. Boom. We'll end with the interlude titled An Inconvenient Patron. Yes. And we have... Uh, a little bit of, I guess, an apology to make. We were a little unclear this week about exactly where we were going to end, gave slightly conflicting information. We said, you know, we would start the next one at the beginning of part three, but that wasn't quite true. So in case anybody has a little, any, any extra confusion out there. I don't know what I'm doing. You need to go read that first interlude in the beginning of part three. You have to read it, yo. Well, so let's pause the podcast, it. go read it, and then, you know, start the podcast again. So let's get into it. Let's. Whoop, whoop. This we podcast s- is ninja, yo. We started off with an intersect, which I think is is what we're calling. We're getting these little glimpses of the mind talk between the Bonds Magi. It's like the screw tape letters. It is kind of like the screw tape letters. Right. But with, you know, evil mages instead. Which one screw tape? Well, definitely the the progressive set of mages is screw tape. The older oh, conservative. Okay. So we have two factions of mages, the older conservative mages and then the younger, who I call, in my brain, call the good guy mages, I guess, because they claim to be more benevolent than the others. Mm, And then the younger progressive mages who were the cohorts of the falconer. Progressivism in the world of the mages means killing more people. Yes. In in mage world, progressive equals bad. Progressive is murder in mage world. 
We don't comment on it's real all, life politics. It's all about on your this perspective. Podcast. No, That's we exactly. do not. And we never will. So anyway, these two bonds magi in this intersect, which is titled Tinder. They are mind talking with each other. But why is it called Tinder? I, you know, there are so many jokes that I almost made about <laughs> bonds magi, mind talking and Tinder. He saw Lamora and he swiped left. <laughs> So many jokes you could make. Do you even need Tinder if you can mind talk? Good point. I mean, pretty much the brains of everyone around you are like a big, just shuffle through like a file cabinet. I'm just saying it would make dating a lot easier. (laughs) Or more difficult. I don't know. I think more difficult. I think if you could read what was going on in everyone's mind. You wouldn't want to date anybody ever? You wouldn't want to date anybody. (laughs) Exactly. What I'm saying is the key to dating is to cover your true intentions. That's what absolutely that's what we're saying. (laughs) It carries on into marriage as well. Yeah. He who sociopaths the most (laughs) wins. (laughs) I don't think that's true, by the way. I I can't believe we're this off track already and we're (laughs) less than five minutes into the podcast. Listen, I don't have a lot to say about this section. But Bond's Mage Mage Tinder. But I have a lot to say in general. (laughs) Sometimes it's relevant and witty and sometimes it's just a lot of fucking words. (laughs) Like so much wind. Coming out my mouth hole. <laughs> Second use of the word mouth hole in this podcast. <laughs> it's late. That's funnier than it should have been. <laughs> All right, let's 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 get on with the show. I'm sorry. We're back into the Tinder, the Bonds Mage Tinder. And we have a bad guy mage talking to a good guy mage. So one of the associates of the Falconer, and he's talking, and he's not impressed with Locke and John so far, because basically they've managed to jack up everything that they've tried to do. Yeah, it'd be difficult to be impressed. And a good guy mage tells him, interesting things are going to be happening around Lamora, and to keep an eye on him. So well, and we put know, that little pin in that tidbit right there. Yeah, and we know that patience has some ability to see the future. Correct. Which I take to be a relatively rare thing amongst the Bonds Mages, just because of the way it's highlighted. They seem to be like uber crazy, all-powerful in almost every way, except that seeing the future is imperfect and rare, and you know you get glimpses. It's not, it's not like the golden path of Paul Atreides. That was my impression as well. Okay, gotcha. So, you know, is this quote good guy made saying he, you know, predicts good things from Locke Lamora because he's got the inside scoop from Ole Miss uh, patient, uh, mom, I mean, patience. Is that what's going on there? Or does he also, can he also see the future? Or is he just a betting man? Don't know. I do not know. Hmm. But a little bit of a teaser there that something. Yeah. I, I think I know how. Tell me. He read the title of the first book. Look, this guy's the protagonist, all right? <laughs> it's, it's too late for meta jokes. <laughs> I can't pull it off. <laughs> so we go from this one little one-page intersect to an interlude titled The Mon Crane Company. Yep. And what's the name of the town they're in? 
Aspara? Aspara. Aspara. So the troop in Aspara. Not the only troop in Aspara. These are the underdog troopers, troops in Aspara. Yeah, these are the bad news bears. Yeah, yeah. Of street players, yeah. basically. They're the Browns. So where we left off in the interlude, they had just found out that the... Proprietor? The acting master they were being sent to a basically apprentice under and mm-hmm. also help him restore his fortunes, Jasmine Moncrane, has been locked up in the Weeping Tower for a year and a day for punching a noble in the face. And they are kind of gathered with the rest of Moncrane's company and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do about this. They meet the rest of the company. So we've got Alando, Sylvanas, Genora, the stage mistress, and Alizana, who is the inn owner. And the players are unsure as to why the Kamori want them back at all. And there are some funny moments where they, they show up and apparently Jasmer had been talking about them because everyone who meets them says, the Kamori, they're, they're real. real. Yeah, They're real? Dear gods, you're real. That's one thing you didn't lie about. And when they ask how they can go to see Jasmer, someone says, all you need to do is wait for his conviction the day after tomorrow, then wait another year and a day, and then stand outside the Weeping Tower. He'll be the one coming out with his right hand missing. So basically, nobody wants Jasmer back. He's he's burned all his bridges. He's a drunk. He's kind of a good-for-nothing jackass, and nobody wants to try and get him back. And nobody can even fathom why the gentleman bastards want to get him back. Um, the gentlemen bastards, on the other hand, feel that they've got to at least try. They're being sent there as sort of a test from their mentor. And that part of the test was they were to help restore Jasmer's fortune. So they're going to try and get him out. And Locke and Sabatha have a nice moment where they're discussing the troops' money problem. And Sabatha suggests, well, we need some quick cash, like purses are purses. Let's go steal some stuff. And Locke shuts it down. Now, in the last interlude, we saw them having an argument about, you know, whether they will they or won't they kind of moment. We see them having kind of an argument. And Sabbath tells him that part of the reason that she is conflicted about being with him is that the way that he basically comes in and bosses everyone around. He just assumes leadership. He does, like some kind of leader or something. Some kind of privileged white dude. Right? And it used to be that she got to assume the leadership. Yeah, like some privileged white chick. Exactly. And she is not having it. So, but this was a nice little moment here where Locke, Sabatha suggests stealing and Locke says, nope, that's not a good idea. And she gives him the death glare and he says, hold on. Look, I hear what I hear what you said before and I want to try and do better. Let me try to convince you why I think that this is not a good idea. Mm -hmm. And we see like like relationship growth, like character development from a 16 year old. Right. Not possible. It's crazy. But it's just nice that we're going to see this this relationship progress a little bit. Yeah. And again, you know, we spent a lot of the last podcast comparing this sort of star-crossed lover dynamic with one that we read in the Kingkiller Chronicles between Quoth and Denna. And what I like about Locke and Sabatha is 
if they are going to work out, if they aren't, at least they're things are happening to change their relationship. And it's it's things that are happening because of decisions that the characters are making and ways that they are choosing to act. And also the way they're choosing to act and relate to each other. So the relationship that we see with Quoth and Denna happens over a more compressed period of time. And because they never can tell each other anything about themselves... They really never really know, you know, who each other are in a in any true sense. There is no growth, right? And I, for me, that's the crux of what frustrates me at the most about that relationship, and why I always bitch about it when we talk about that book or when we read that book. It is so frustrating, and I don't know if it's meant to be frustrating because it's building to something or not. I, that's my hope, but. For me, I, I really enjoy that about Locke and Sabbath's relationship, that whether they end up together or not down the road, you know that at least they're trying to talk to each other and work things out. Yeah, absolutely. So they go to visit a solicitor on behalf of Jasmer. He laughs and laughs and laughs at them for wanting to get him out and tells and then he them. he says, no. Oh, you're serious. Right. <laughs> He tells them that the only way they're going to be able to get him back is to convince the noble that he punched not to press charges. And what is that? Who is that noble? His name is Lord Buladazi. I didn't even try to pronounce it. I, I'm pretty sure it's, I'm saying it right. God bless you. But some of our more humorous jokes have come from me mispronouncing things. So by all means, if I, I'm saying it wrong, someone jump in there. The, yeah, the, I was like, is this... A Hungarian dish, or is it the name of some Aspara nobleman? I don't know. I think it sounds like some kind of Italian slang for like someone's junk. <laughs> the Buladazi. I got him right in the Buladazi. <laughs> I gave her the good Buladazi. <laughs> Not that bad Buladazi. <laughs> so I kind of wish I had two sets of genitals. All right, then. I mean, a good set and a bad set. Oh, just so you could take one. Sp- <laughs> it's the company Buladazi right there. Yeah, the loner <laughs> Buladazi. Loner. Who would you loan it to? Chad? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it depends on the certain. Listen. What is happening tonight? <laughs> listen, I'm later in life. Doing? You know, I have a different set of values now, but I wasn't always <laughs> like this. You know, I didn't. I didn't always have the sense of morality that I have now. I'd have loaned it out around town. Like, <laughs> just sign this waiver. Would you like to purchase the Buladazi insurance? <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> People over 25 get it for cheaper. I it's mean, just weird. You it's just think about weird it. tonight, you guys. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. <laughs> oh, I didn't think we'd be able to top pickled dildos for being weird, but I think we maybe we maybe just did it. That's pretty damn weird. <laughs> so, Locke and Sabatha. You can't pickle the Buladazi. That's not good. It'll ruin it. You don't want to get vinegar on your Buladazi. Anyway. <laughs> you don't want vinegar on your You Buladazi. don't. Sorry. No. Go ahead. Go ahead. What if it smells like lemons? No, that that's that that could work. 
Like, but you don't want it to smell like vinegar. Nobody wants that. No. Ne- ever. Oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to say Buladazi with a straight face now. <laughs> Lock, this is going to be tough. Lock and Sabbath go to visit Moncrane to kind of assess his situation. And uh, Moncrane doesn't want their help. And uh, Sabbath, I guess, to kind of be a badass here. It's neat to see her work. You know, Moncrane shows up and he's basically like, why do I want to leave prison? I'm safe here for at least a year and a day. You know, my other creditors out there, they're going to kill me. They're going to they're going to cut off my Buladazi. <laughs> Everywhere I go, there's Buladazi <laughs> looking for me. You don't want to run across a Buladazi in a dark alley. I have to constantly looking over my shoulder for Buladazi. <laughs> uh so Locke and Sabatha, you know, basically tell him or Sabatha kind of looks at him and says, listen, you ass, you don't have any other creditors. No. We're the front of the line. Listen, you don't get to have agency. You're a bit character. Exactly. You do what we tell you to do because we're the protagonist. <laughs> exactly. You're played by a character actor. Like uh You're not an A-list star. Like a Stanley Tucci? Yeah, but black. Black Stanley Tucci. Who is the Black Stanley Tucci? I don't know. That's a good question. Don Cheadle? Oh, no. No, Don Cheadle's a little bit he's too a real A-list. Actor. Yeah, he's a real actor. Stanley Tucci's a real actor, by the way. <laughs> Listeners, chime in. Who, Who is, is the, the Black, Black Stanley Tucci? It's <laughs> a good question. I don't know. <laughs> Not sure. But that gets his attention. And, and Sabbath also, you know, plays the Kamori card. You don't want to mess with us. We're Kamori. You stay in here your year and a day. And when you come out, you're going to be faced with more Kamori than you've ever seen in your fucking life. And and we're going to have a word with you and your and your Buladazi. <laughs> Cut your Buladazi off Cut and shove it down your throat. Buladazi right off. And then she also says to him, I love this line, and my name isn't girl. Most times you can call me Verana Galante, but when I'm on stage, you'll call me Amadine. Oh, Z-snap. You can't see it, but I am shaking my He's head. He's shaking his head. Snapping it's it around. Good part. So we get to see Sabbath be a badass, and that's yeah. kind of cool. They approach, so she and Locke now have to convince Buladazi. Now so we now, have now we have to stand in front of Bully Dazi with a straight face. Now we actually have to go talk to Bully Dazi. Oh, this is going to be tough. <laughs> and pretend like he isn't what we, what we know he is. A real a, dick. A real <laughs> <laughs> so I thought the mini Stuck con. Up rich prick. The, the mini con on. It's perfect. It's a perfect yeah. name for him now. Who knew that Bully Dazi meant dick in Italian? Or whatever language this is. I'm pretending it's Italian. <laughs> Asparian. Uh, so the mini con they sort of run on Buladazi is is kind of clever, I thought. Yeah. They walk in. They pretend to be Kamori nobles in disguise. And Sabatha pretends to be the granddaughter of one of the dukes of Kamor or one of the the, the lords of Kamor who mm-hmm. she's, whose tower she worked at. So she knows the family. She knows the castle a little bit. And she tells Buladazi that she's always wanted to be on stage, but she's sort of not supposed to do that because she's going to be a countess one day. 
So her father has allowed her to go sow her wild oats. She's on Roomspringer. She's on Roomspringer. Exactly. In Moncrane's company for the summer. And they are able to pull this off because, A, because Sabbath has spent time in this particular castle, and B, that she and Locke are both phenomenal liars. And, and because what happens on Roomspringer stays on Roomspringer. Exactly. And C, because nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> so, <laughs> Where the hell did that come from? It's, it makes total sense. All right. They're in Aspara. Nobody's inquisiting them. No, but we talked about this before, how in this universe, the whole idea of a confidence game is unheard of. Oh, People yeah, just yeah, yeah. aren't expecting people to be running around pretending to be lords and ladies, particularly um, to do it as well as Locke and Sabatha are able to do it. You know, they speak the languages, they know the customs, they know the family members that they are impersonating. Nobody is really, really nobody's expecting them to do this kind of thing. Well, it's interesting too, and and I don't know, so maybe you can help me clarify. I I, I don't quite recall. But it seems to me that to this point in our interludes, Chains has taught them several ways to sort of act and con people, but they're like, single touch jobs you know you drop a cake you oh my master's gonna do what you know but they're not these multi-touch long-term things he we know that he has some vision for them but i don't think he's really elaborated on the page for kind of how that what that vision is so it seems to me like we are sort of seeing the birth of the gentleman bastards and their, you know, their long cons. I think that is a fair assessment. Yeah. I certainly think we haven't seen anything in the interludes prior to suggest that Chains has planned anything this elaborate for them at all. And maybe it hasn't even, doesn't even have a real idea of what they're going to become or what their potential is. And I think that's been, was part of his frustration at the beginning of this book when he is, shouting at them and saying, you have no idea what freedom you have, what I've given you. Like, you could do anything. Yeah, all this talent sitting around, all this potential. What are, I mean, what are we going to do? One-touch cons for the rest of our lives? And there's a, a part in this very scene where Locke points that out and kind of comes to that realization as he is able to walk into this nobleman's living room and basically and get him to drop charges against someone who punched him in the face with nothing more than a flashback. They don't even have nice clothes. They're just able to do this. And he kind of it hits him. Oh, my gosh, this is true. I'm we have so much freedom. So um, Sabatha is able to win Buladazi over with her her sexy sword talk. We see her kind of manipulate him by uh, noticing a, an expensive or rare sword that he has and pretending to be interested in it, and he's done for. It reminds, and nobody's going to get this reference, but it reminds me of the Police Academy movies. There was always this one, you know, very, he was the kind of the straight character in Police Academy, and he was, I think it was Taggart was his name, and yep. he was the one who always had like 18 guns, and then he, I think in the second one, he comes across this girl, and she 
loves guns as much as he do, he does and they decide to hook up and you know she's pulling off her bra and pulling out three guns and they're setting them down on the side and they've one in each sock and you know that's what it reminds I me i remember of. that you scene. remember that scene? okay all right totally i think we just aged ourselves we're seasoned okay there you go so Buladazi is done for and he agrees to help free Mon Crane, but he asks Locke to help be his wingman in exchange. Yeah. Burr, burr. And Locke imagines smashing his face with the billiard table many times. But I thought it was funny that in his fantasies of, of smashing this guy, it's not even him smashing him. He fantasizes about John coming in and smashing him. <laughs> like even in his daydreams, he's not. Yeah. He, he doesn't imagine actually being able to beat someone up. He's like, it might be a daydream, but we're not going to be ridiculous. Right. That's crazy here. <laughs> I mean, come on. So is that the end of the interlude? or That is the end of the interlude. Boom. Now we're into the chapter. Chapter seven. Chapter seven is called the five-year game counter move. Counter move. It's another change of venue. Indeed. So we're on board the Valentine's Resolve which is the name of the luxury prison ship. And who is the Valentine? Valentine is the captain of the ship. Mm. The ship is named the Valentine's Resolve. This they is, resolve to cruise around and eat good food. Exactly. And not let Locke and Jean escape. That's a so, hell of a resolution. This is the ship that Sabatha has arranged a lengthy cruise for Locke and John, which is meant to spit them back in Carthane about two weeks after the election. They are being wined and dined like kings, but they're shackled like crooks. Mm. So basically, Sabatha has thought of everything as far as these how to keep them secure on this boat. And the crew has a very extensive list of instructions with regards to searching them, searching their rooms every day, they are not allowed shoes, and um, it's Locke says it's the most comfortable and most vexing imprisonment that he could have imagined. So one funny part here that I noticed was there Locke and Jean are talking about, you know, their their prospects, and uh, and Locke goes, "It would be nice to have a visit from our benefactor patients right about now." now. Or now. now. <laughs> I just thought that was yeah, funny. Yeah, that was pretty funny. So this is where Jean and Locke have decided that they're going to have to work very hard as a team together, be very slick, so they can make my predictions come true, yo. <laughs> Wait, which prediction? I can't remember. I said that they get off the boat and they get back to the island. Oh, yeah, well... I mean, I don't think anybody really thought the book book was going to end with them, you know, sitting on that sailing boat. forever. I didn't say it was a good prediction. <laughs> I mean, that I was didn't a pretty say, safe one. I didn't say that anybody else. I'll still give it to you. Couldn't have made it. <laughs> I'll still give it to if you. If you are of reading age, I could, <laughs> I could have predicted that they were both fae and would have floated away on wings. <laughs> I predicted crazier shit. Locke is a fae. He no. Sabbath is a fae. No. Denna is a fae. Denna is not a fae. She's just bad at communicating. Okay. <laughs> well, maybe that's, that's what happens when you take the moon away. <laughs> so uh, Patience does not show up despite no. her being given a cue. 
Instead, they have to wait He's for a storm. for his mama. And lo and behold, a convenient storm blows up. And did you notice that the wind seems to veer however is least convenient for the captain of the ship during this storm? Yeah, I mean, he even points it out. Like, right, he no says matter, the wind yeah. seems to be blowing however is the least convenient. So yeah. the storm blows up. So we kind of assume that maybe there's some, some Bonds Magi who are skirting the rule of non-interference by... I didn't. But it's probably a safe bet. I mean, I think the captain makes a point to say that the wind seems to be blowing them close to shore no matter what they do. It seems to be changing direction and blowing whichever way is the least convenient for them getting out of the storm. That is true, yes. Um, But this convenient storm blows up. They manage to smuggle a piece of broken glass, saw through the ropes of the small boat, and there's a very comical, which I could just sort of picture in my mind is playing out, exchange where the boat is the small boat finally shakes loose but it's sliding back and forth and failing to actually get over the railing and they're just kind of chasing it and it finally goes over and it sinks yeah it noses in <laughs> upside down which goes right under the water and Locke's like what do we do now and john's like you're going in john's <laughs> like i can't hear you just jump and pushes yeah. him <laughs> yeah yeah so John ends up, I mean, there's there's some drama. John ends up jumping in and breaking his nose on the boat as it resurfaces. And Locke is able to save him. Yeah, that's, I equate this to being another one of the, you know, breaking out of the glass tower, you know, through a window and there's an elevator right there sort of moments. Right. I mean, you could also call it plot armor. So I don't know how seriously to take that, but swim trying to swim in... In leg leg manacles and, you know, and coming up with the boat. The way everything works there is a highly, highly unlikely for that chain of events to result and then both be safe without drowning. You know, they don't, you know, it's, it, it seems to me like there's most likely some sort of intervention, whether it's from the Crooked Warden, the Bonds Mages, I don't know. But it seems like a highly unlikely series of events. It's interesting because the other thing that I jotted down in this scene was regarding the incident with the lights at the bottom of the Amethel. These are not the benign little glowy fish that I was expecting. Exactly. As they're as they're sinking down and Locke is struggling to come up with Jean, they get a closer look at there are these lights, sort of remnants of the Eldrin. We saw something similar in the ghost wind, something that the Eldrin mm-hmm. left behind. But when they're down underneath the water close to them, it's with there's a very ominous feel to these lights. So it's just always interesting, yeah. and I always note when there's something of the Eldrin mentioned and some remnant that it happens of that mystery, in conjunction yeah. with another sort of miraculous escape is mm. interesting. So what were the other... What were the other times in which there was a miraculous escape where there was an Eldrin-related thing? I mean, the, they were in an elder glass tower when he escaped and there was an elevator. But other than that, I can't think of I can't think of when those two things sort of coincided. No, I can't I can't really. Oh, okay. So the um the glowy fish that are not glowy fish sort of remind me of I can't think of the name of it, but it's in Lord of the Rings when they're in 
Mordor and it's the river with the yeah, uh, with the, the dead faces, the dead faces underneath of it. That's sort of what it reminded that, me of. That reminded me of that as well, and that's yeah. definitely a, a, a trope we've seen in other books. If you've read Harry Potter, there's a scene. And I haven't. And you haven't. Sorry, spoilers for Harry Potter, but not really spoilers. There is a scene with, you know, zombies trying to get Harry under the water at some point. Mm. But either way, the the Eldrin lights are not fun. They're not little fairy lights. Well, and they were coming towards them, right? Yes. Locke is like not happy about that. And, he, and he's like, I hate the Eldrin. They suck. I hate all the shit they left behind. It's terrible. So it's interesting because we've had some talk especially with the Bonds Mages, of what what was it that drove the Eldrin off and that that's something we should be afraid of. But also we're reminded that the Eldrin were not, would not have been benevolent to humans probably if yeah. they were still yeah, there. Yeah. yeah. So either way, they escape, they get a, on the boat. I think it's a statement about how power corrupts. I think it is too. Yeah, I think you're right. Because who are the most corrupt people in this series. No, absolutely. That is one of the main themes of this series. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It is corruption and power. Yep. So they make it to shore. They do. And they find somebody who is the only person in this very, very rural area with any power. And that is the man driving the wagon. So they rob a coach. Yeah. It's kind of entertaining. Uh, it's an It's an armored coach. Yeah, that was fun. It was fun. And my favorite part was when they finally uh, are able to get the Lord or whoever merchant rich guy in there out and make him strip his clothes. And, and he's, you know, while he's still in the coach, he's taunting them. They threaten to take the coach and dump it over a cliff. So he finally comes out and, and he's raining threats down upon them. This is what's going to happen to you. And Locke says, well, that's a remote possibility. But you know what's a certainty? Next fire I need to start, I'm using your clothes to do it, asshole. <laughs> that's the end of the chapter. And that's the end of the chapter. So, again, not a whole lot of plot moving on, but we no. do see our heroes get away from the boat and get back to Carthane. So now it'll be time. So at this point, we have seen them show up in Carthane and pretty much just get beat up by Sabatha. I mean, it's just been like a, a one-two knockout Steady so far. Kicking. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see whether they're able to turn it around. Well, one of the advantages that they will have is that they will be able to show up unexpectedly. Correct. Although I'm certain Sabatha has prepared for the possibility, at least, that they will somehow manage to get off of the boat. Oh. Seeing as how you've read the book before. I mean, would that have been a surprise? Maybe. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. So next next interlude is the beginning of part three. Correct. And it is called Oren and Amadine. Yes. And it is the third stanza. The opening, the little uh, opening there is the third stanza of Carl Sandburg's the Great Hunt poem. Yes, it is, and it's just lovely. I did. I did a fair amount Would of research. Would you like to read it? I have it. Yeah. Yes, read it. Part three is titled "Fatal Honesty." Well, I'm going to read the entire poem. Well, that's not part of the poem. The names of the sections. Oh, I'm sorry. Gotcha. Okay. So, part one is called "Her Shadow." 
Uh, part two is called Cross Purposes, and part three is called Fatal Honesty. Gotcha. Okay. So here is the entire Carl Sandburg poem, The Great Hunt, in its entirety. Read it. I cannot tell you now when the winds drive and whirl, blow me along no longer, and the winds whisper at last, maybe I'll tell you then some other time, when the roses flash to the sunset, reels to the rack and the twist, and the roses are red by gone, when the face I love is going, and the gate to the end shall clang. It's no use to beckon or say, so long, maybe I'll tell you then some other time. I never knew any more beautiful than you. I have hunted you under my thoughts. I have broken down under the wind and into the roses looking for you. I shall never find any greater than you. Man, Locke, love him some Sabbath. He does. and I, This is a great poem for this book. Carl Sandburg loves him some chicken. Man, he loves him some chicken. That's Colonel Sanders. No, it's not. You're wrong. You're wrong. So, so would, you, would you like to hear something that's sort of interesting about Carl Sandburg? Yeah. So I, I suspect this has nothing to do with anything, but Carl Sandburg actually led an incredibly interesting life, slightly like Locke Lamora, in that he did like a million things. He did a little bit of everything. Uh, he was, before he became a poet, he was a... He was homeless. He did all kinds of odd jobs. He actually learned to write poetry and got his mastery of language by becoming a salesman. And that was where he, and then from there, he ended up accepted to college and became actually, in his time, one of the rare poets who was honored and accepted and really had celebrity status prior to his death. But I just, there seems to be a lot of similarities to me to the life he had led prior to his, you know, becoming this very, very famous poet and what we see in Locke Lamora. That is very interesting. And for me, it seems to me that Scott Lynch puts a lot of thought into the quotes that he puts at his section headings. You know, we mm -hmm. talked a lot in the last book about Richard III and the similarities yes. between him and between Locke. Yes. So I don't know that that's, I don't know that that's a coincidence. And certainly, you know, this poem about someone who is longing for another and uh, putting off telling her is very appropriate. So the other thing I thought about in relation to that is that when we go back and we talk about the other interlude here, we find that all these experiences of being an apprentice in with Azagia, being an apprentice on a farm, being in a, all these little things that the gentleman bastards have done is what gives them their sort of unique power that allows them to, to live and thrive and survive and be successful and comfortable in this strange role that is not, otherwise accepted and Carl Sandburg other than owning a chain of chicken joints was this person who had all these weird and crazy experiences and went to college much later in life than anybody else normally would but it was because of all those things that enabled him to be this sort of celebrity poet which is really just this incredibly rare thing that most people don't get to be celebrity poets in their lifetime 
they get accepted after the fact. It's like Carl Sandburg and Lucille Clifton, and that's pretty much it. Bukowski, maybe. Mm, okay, yeah. But no, I, I think that's a great point. I think there's probably might be something to that. Maybe. I like to think there is. Sure. But you know me, I love the poem at the beginning of the section. You do. You're it's a one fan. Of my favorites. Sucker for it. That and baby hippos. <laughs> so the next interlude is called Orin and Amadine. Yeah. All about that Amadine. So Jean and Genora in the beginning of this are talking about why she and the others have been putting up with Moncrane's crap, basically. So she explains that the ones who have stayed are stakeholders in the company. And, you know, if they walk, then they lose the money they've invested. And also that Moncrane is a damn good actor. Might be a dick, but he's good at what he does. He's kind of a bulladazi. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> so Moncrane returns. So if if bulladazi means. Penis, yes. Then what does Moncrane mean? No, I, I don't. I don't. I think Moncrane is just the character. Sometimes a Moncrane is just a Moncrane. Sometimes a Moncrane is just a Moncrane. So sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. It is. So don't get greedy. We found one good <laughs> code word for genitals. We don't need two right now. You always need two genitals. <laughs> no, about needing a spare. <laughs> I'm just saying it's an idea. So Moncrane returns, and Locke is able to clear his debts. He's hands money back to his creditors. Well, he walks into the, the inn and everyone says, Norm! <laughs> exactly. And then proceeds to line up to smack him in the face. Yeah. Uh, we, we get the lovely term degenerate ass canker. Yeah. Which I wish I had an opportunity to use in my daily life, but I am a stay-at-home mom, so there are... Not that many people I can call as a degenerate ass canker. Well, listen, somebody's getting it, whether they deserve it or not. It's going to have to be you. It's going to come out somewhere. <laughs> can we just call people a DAC? Sure. And you'll know what I mean? Absolutely. Oh, Stephanie's mom at school. <laughs> what a DAC. <laughs> All right, but you'll know what I mean. I'll know what you mean, yeah, yeah. So the company all gets together. We meet probably one of my favorite characters who goes by the illustrious name of Donker. <laughs> it was now, like, Chad, sometimes a donker is just a donker. It's just a donker. <laughs> it's like Kirk Cameron's friend in Growing Pains. <laughs> Like, we're all just going to sit here and pretend like they didn't just call him Boner? <laughs> we're not, nobody's, nobody's going to call this out? Like, why did they call him Boner? We're all okay why? with this. It's like literally billions of other words they could have randomly used. Why? Oh, nothing I want more than to put my loner Bulladazi right in her donker. Right in the donker. <laughs> right in the donker. <laughs> oh. oh. I hope for anybody who would be offended by this. They're long gone. We've already offended Episode you. Episode three, they were out. 
<laughs> we would have already offended they you. They were gone 50 episodes ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I hope so. So the company gets together and talks about the play. So the play that they're putting on is called Republic of Thieves. And it's written by the the Shakespeare of the Scotland world. And it's about a guy named Oren, who is the son of the emperor, and Amadine, who is the queen of the thieves. And it's sort of a love story between the two of them. So they get together. They're like, okay, this is the play. This is what it's about. Who's going to play what parts? And um, Mon Crane gets to school the Asino brothers in acting a little bit. And it's just, for me, it didn't add a whole lot to moving the plot forward. But it was just a nice little, I guess because I did acting in school mm-hmm. and did a little Shakespeare doing that. And it was just, I don't know, for me, that was a nice scene. It was um, I, yeah, interesting. I, I enjoyed reading all the all those parts. Um, it, for me, it parts. wasn't like the, the tacking and the sailing and all. No, no, no. It well, was it also wasn't as long. And it wasn't as long. It was only a few pages. So. Yeah, so a little, little different there. I'm just thinking play within a play, play within a novel. Mm-hmm. Specifically, one that seems to be alluding to Shakespeare. Well, what always happened with the play within a play is inside of Shakespeare. Something significant to the plot. Correct. Yeah, it was always huge foreshadowing, right? So Amadine is Sabatha. Like there's right. I, I thought this was interesting because Amadine, you know, it's not just a part that Sabatha wants to play. Amadine is who Sabatha wants to be yeah. in real life. And yeah. we definitely see her from the get-go going, this is my part. I, this is my part. And when a, a former actress, Chantal, wanders back in and says, you know what, I'm going to come back if you're you're doing the play because I really want to be Amadine. It's like, mm and a scuffle and fists and words are thrown. Mm-hmm. And um, and Sabbath is going to get this part because this is who, you know, when we think back to her as a child in that underground borough and when they're talking about who's going to be in, in the priesthood, her saying, I want to be the best. I, I want it because I'm the best thief and I want to be she's the best. She's the queen of the thieves. She wants to be the queen of the thieves is what she's always wanted, I'm, that glory. Yeah, there's no question the prosody is strong between who Sabatha is and who Amandine is, right? Very, very strong. Locke just wants to be where Sabatha is. He just wants to make out with Sabatha on stage. Right? Because he's infatuated with the Queen of the Thieves. Totally nutso infatuated. Just like Orin, who is the son of an emperor. Yeah. Is this trying to tell us that Locke is the son of some nobleman, some dead duke? Some Was there some war five years, or six years, seven years prior to him showing up, you know, at the, uh, you know, or a couple years before him showing up at the thief maker? Did the bonds mages steal him away? I don't know. I mean, I do, but I'm. Do you do? To see my innocent. That means on. we find out. I mean, I. Puladazi. <laughs> <laughs> uh. 
means we find out in this no, book. No, 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 that's not what I mean. Or we don't. I, I mean, stop trying to trick me. I see dead people. <laughs> Everywhere I look, I see Bulatazi. <laughs> it's coming straight from my mouth hole. Oh, God, that's terrible. I think it's the loner. <laughs> so, that's some bad bulladazzi. <laughs> so, cool. Sabatha gets the role of Amadine, and Locke gets the leading man's sidekick. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to be Oren's... Best friend. Best friend. friend. <laughs> yeah. So he mopes about it a little bit. And finally, Jean tells him to reach between your legs, find some balls, or you do not get to speak to me on the subject of Sabatha for the rest of the summer. And he gets him to go. And they and Locke and Sabatha finally sit down and they have the talk. What were your, was your reaction to this scene and them kind of finally putting all, putting all their feelings out there for each other? It was refreshing as kind of a next step in people being able to move forward. I felt like her, to me, so she says to Locke, look, you're the only, like, I've I've spent my entire life surrounded by f- three boys, four boys. She says, we literally live in a hole. We, yeah, we live in a hole in the ground together. Like, you're basically my brother. I don't want my life to be bound to you and this fucking hole in the ground that we live in. You know, and when you're a 16-year-old girl, boy, whatever, that's a valid fucking point. It, it really is, and it's so refreshing to have, like, again, these, these star-crossed lovers in a fantasy novel have, like, nuanced and valid reasons to maybe not want to be together. Well, and, and it's also interesting to me that both of their, both of their points of view, because, like, I remember being a teenager in love, you know, why must I be a teenager in love? Because it's fucking miserable, right? It sucks. It sucks, right? <laughs> so, like, I've been on both sides of that. I've been I've been the teenager who was like, I don't care if we have to live in a grass hut. I want to be with her, mm-hmm. you know, like. And then two months later, you're like, what was I thinking, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've also been the one, you know, who was like, I really like this person, but I'm 16 and I want to have a, a life, you know, I want to do other things and explore other things, you know. So I've been on kind of both sides of that. And I think most teenagers probably have, you mm-hmm. know, and it's interesting to kind of get this dynamic in those two people. It is. And it was refreshing to see them actually just be able to sit down there and and say all of this, you know, in in most fantasy novels, if you're going to have star-crossed lovers, it's because like, my uncle slew your, the king's net or whatever. Yeah, there's you there's Montague. some yeah. convoluted external reason why they can't be together. It's not, this is just such a real human interaction and real human feelings. And, and it is very refreshing. I mean, the girl that I was in love with when I was 16, 
her father owned the uh, the gerbil beheading plant <laughs> gerbil where my father <laughs> fell into the gerbil beheading machine and had a terrible accident. He lost and his bulladazzi. <laughs> he was a real bulladazzi. And my family blamed it all on, on her and her family and we could not be together. That's, I, I, mean, I mean, her misfortune is my gain, but... Yeah, I'm down. I can see why that would <laughs> put a damper. You know, I mean, who wants to, to marry the heir to the gerbil beheading fortune anyway, <laughs> really? So Locke pours his heart out to Sabatha and he says to her, I'd rather be confused about you than stone fucking certain about anyone else. And he also apologizes to her for the dynamic that she pointed out in their last conversation, where he doesn't always treat her with the respect that she deserves because he assumes that everyone in the gang is just going to fall in line with his suggestions. And he, he apologizes for treating her like, like, in a way that she doesn't like. Like it's not her name on the front of the goddamn book. Exactly. And it's not. And Sabatha, in turn, tells him straight out that she has feelings for him. She says uh, she adores him. She she loves the way that he knows how to tell the whole world to F off. She says, you would piss in Azagila's eye even if it got you a million years in hell. And after a million years, you'd do it again. She really likes that in a dude. <laughs> My mother said it would get us nowhere. But after two million years in hell, I'd do it all over again. But she also tells him that she doesn't like that she has those feelings for him because she doesn't want to be loved because it's inevitable. And, and Locke counters with, not everything inevitable is regrettable. So, and she's really close to being swayed. And then Locke sticks his foot right in it. I love me some ginger. I love him. I love him. <laughs> Curtain match drapes. Let me see. Come here, red. Come on, big red. Oh, give me that red. And he tells her that. Is it true what they say? <laughs> You can't see it right now, but I've got my creeper face on. He does have his creeper face on. Uh, Locke tells her that, that he's been fixated on her since they were children. And he, somehow this is proof that that just because it's inevitable, it's not regrettable. And that, that the sight of her red hair as a child created a fixation within him that he has never been able to get over. And it's game over, man. Like, game over. What? That is the worst thing he could have said to her. And she she loses it. She loses it, and she asks him, do you know why I've been dodging slavers my whole life? Do you know why I was trusted with a poison knife at a young age when Calo and Galdo were barely allowed to have an orphan's twist? You know, so... You know, what they say about redheaded girls, you know, apparently they're in demand for slavers. Yeah. And this, I mean, to me, this sort of, it just so completely comes out of left field. And I think that's appropriate for the writing because it seems like to Locke, it also comes out of left field. Whether whether he should or shouldn't have known that this was a big deal, I, I don't know. But I don't like I don't feel like the groundwork has been laid for me to know. Really? Because when you think back to the very first scene where we met Sabatha and she has the her hair tucked up under a cap and the cap is knocked off. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And she freaks out 
and says, wraps it back up and says, you are lucky that nobody saw that, that nobody saw her hair. So, so yeah, I remember all of that, I think. But, you know, you have to sort of supply a reason in your mind for why that is, you know, and I'm thinking she's trying to hide from a family or she's, you know, supposed to be in character or, or just more to the point that red hair stands out and makes her more easily identifiable. And she's somebody who's breaking into windows. So she doesn't want to, she'd rather have dark hair and fit in with everybody else. If she's that redheaded thief, she's a lot easier to pick out. I'm not thinking because there's a huge, you know, sex trafficking trade in redheads. Like, I just don't feel like the groundwork for that was laid. Well, I think that the fact that it's mentioned at the beginning of the book and now we kind of get the story, now she's telling him, this is why I have a hang up about people just wanting me for my red hair, for my hair color. Yeah, and like, and in the context of what she says, to me, that makes sense. Like, if that's the reality of the world, I get why she's, why that would be upsetting to her. I get why she would have that attitude. I, what I don't get is why Locke can't see that when he lives in the same world. Well, it, you would assume that it's not something he knows about. I Yeah. In, I do assume it's not something he knows about, which is why I think it's a little strange, but I also think it's good writing if that's the case because it puts us in the same shoes as Locke. Right. Who, yeah, we know there's something about her having red hair. I assumed it was because she came from some specific family or something, you know. But I didn't, you know, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have known that this would have caused such a huge problem. And Locke apparently didn't either. Apparently he didn't. Yeah. Because he walks right into it. Straight into it. Straight into it. She shoves him off the balcony. Not off the balcony, but down the stairs. He runs right into Lord Buladazi, who heard the whole conversation. And is like, why don't you tell me everything while I put my knife to your throat? And he says... little Buladazi. He says, we're actors. We were acting out a part. Weren't you so convinced? Well, he doesn't say that. Not yet. Is that a prediction? Yep. Okay. That's my prediction. (laughs) We're at the end, right? We're at the end. That's my damn prediction right there. There you go. It's a good prediction. Do you have any more for us? No. All right. I don't. (laughs) This section was, it was just, you know, there's some. Well, two interludes. Two interludes. And then one one chapter where, where they escape the boat. They escape a boat. Which was cool. Yeah. In the way that we were breaking this book down, we kind of needed to have this shorter section in here in order to not leave next week on a terrible cliffhanger. Yeah. So we have now got two more book clubs before we will be at the end of Republic of Thieves. Yep. So that's pretty exciting. That is pretty exciting. And I get to find out who Locke's mother is. You might. I might. I don't know. Stop it. You've already tricked me once. (laughs) All right. I'm going to go ahead and say it. Say it. I'm predicting that Locke is the son of some 
hugely significant political family. Okay. All right. I'm saying it. Say it. I just did. Good. <laughs> so the name of the acting company is the Moncrane Bulldozy Troop, the Moncrane yes. Bulldozy Company. So it's like the Mon, like the company of Moncrane's dick. Yes. Starring Donker. Starring Donker. <laughs> All right. So, would you like to hear some interactions from our listeners? I would. And at some point, you're going to tell me what a juggalo is. We're getting there. (laughs) We're getting there. All right. Brooks on Twitter, who is at BrooksPhilippin2, that's B-R-O-O-K-S-F-I-L-I-P-P-I-N-2, says, I love having your companion podcast while I read the King Killer series. Thanks so much. Thanks to you as well, Brooks. Yes, indeed. So, it's nice to know people are still discovering the King Killer. Yeah, it is. It's it is nice. It's good. So Adam at LFC Adam eighty eight one eight five on Twitter says, "Can we just take a moment for Tyrion's emo Lannister hair in Episode One of Game of Thrones?" Oh my God, that picture was. That picture is rough. It is creepy. It is really rough. Yeah, I'm glad they didn't stick with that. Yeah, and related to Game of Thrones, Ian James Crone had said, and I I thought this was interesting. I didn't quite understand where he was coming from when I first heard it. He said, there's this thread or this meme going around uh, around unpopular opinions about A Song of Ice and Fire or Game of Thrones. And he says, unpopular opinion, A Song of Ice and Fire has hurt speculative fiction as much as it has helped it. And I was like, please do explain because I wasn't quite sure where it was coming from. So he says, I'm not denying how it has helped push spec fic to the mainstream, but it's also glutted the market with imitators. Some are good, Abercrombie, Lawrence, etc., but a lot of them are derivative. I sort of take the tack that anything that helps fantasy in general is generally positive. That's my opinion as well. Yeah, that's generally the way I take it. I don't, I don't think there's any doubt that it is definitely spawned imitators who do not have the same talent. I, I just don't know how much of, I don't know that that's really that much of a bad thing in my opinion. Yeah. I, I think that more, more is better. Um, encouraging writers to write fantasy fiction is going to encourage some bad writers to do it and some good writers to do it. And, you know, I, I think expanding the genre has been positive overall for it. Yeah, I think so. I think also there's more chance for people to come up with something new and innovative when there's just more people writing in that genre. You know, there's going to be a lot of like castles and dragons and princesses. But that's always been the case with fantasy. You know, that's always been the case. So uh, let's see. So when we talked about, when we posted episode 53, we talked about who writes a better version of Starcross Lovers, Patrick Rothfuss or Scott Lynch. And Matt Yeager, who is at Crimson Seraph, says, but wouldn't Denna and Quoth be Mooncross Lovers? Oh, snap. That's right. I like it. That's right. 
So on Facebook, Katrina Knudsen says, I'm excited for the Denver versus Sabatha analysis. I think I hold the opposite opinion of most and that I don't mind Denna, but I don't really like Sabatha. I'm excited to hear the ideas of others. Insert one of those change my mind memes. Susan King also says, Google does not know what a breach cloud is. <laughs> Neither do we, Google. No, we don't. So Theo, Theo Graham Brown on Facebook says, not much to say, but an enjoyable section. Love how they escape from the ship. I presume the Magi on their side sent weather to help the whole of them. Seems to be what the nature of the intersect conversation and the nature of the wind would suggest. I enjoyed the play, too. Lynch has a great eye and or ear for Shakespearean imitation. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, he says, didn't... My only reservation is the ending uh, to the final interlude. Misunderstanding between lovers, bad guy over here is question mark, question mark. You know, I, I can see... It's so hard because when I read this book, I read this whole, you know, last section all in one day so i didn't have time to linger on that but i I could see where you know being forced to stop there it does seems like sort of a contrived well yeah bit of drama it it, yeah it totally does it does seem this is the one i would say move so far that does seem a little denaquothy to me right in this sort of like i guess that's why i kind of bristled at it a little bit too and i was like well how have we earned the how how do Mm -hmm. Is there enough to make this believable to me? Mm-hmm. It's all I, I I can't deny that it's a trope, but right. there's no literature out there that doesn't have tropes. Mm-hmm. It's just interesting to me that everybody seems to have kind of their pet peeve tropes. Mm-hmm. You know, like this is this trope bothers you, this trope you love, you know, and that's just what makes us different. Yeah, you know, like so a beautiful rainbow. <laughs> Eric, Eric, please tell us how to pronounce your name. I believe it's Allgaier. I hope I'm saying that correctly. He says, I want to share an embarrassing truth with your listeners. (laughs) I am not reading along with the Republic of Thieves. (laughs) But the podcast has provided so much depth and entertainment, I feel like I'm reading each chapter along with them. Having said that, I will be upset if Republic of Thieves doesn't close with Locke somehow thwarting patience, then immediately turning to the Falconer and saying, nice mom, asshole. (laughs) That made me laugh so hard. Right? (laughs) So he also says, and remember, I'm not reading along. If you lie and tell me Locke says it, I'll believe you. So we're definitely, that's definitely what happens. I don't know how you predicted it, Eric. I'm not here to lie to you. I I will not lie to you, Eric. (laughs) I will tell you what is true because that's what I'm here for. (laughs) All right. So also on our Facebook page, uh, Elizabeth posted uh, recording episode 54 tonight. Apparently at least part of the episode is going to be devoted to filling in one of my pop culture knowledge gaps in terms of what is a juggalo. So go ahead. Oh, I was just going to give them the backstory on, on yeah, why. Go ahead. go ahead. Why I need to know what a juggalo is. And it's I and I shared a photo of you texting me and saying that you wanted to come up with the the fantasy nerd equivalent of of juggalos. Yeah. And uh and I said, "Ah ha ha, yeah. That's yes." 
And then I realized I was on a field trip with one of our kids and I didn't have Google. So I couldn't look up what you meant by fantasy nerd book nerds. Like if there was an actual thing. And then because yeah, like, uh, I capitalized you it, capitalized it. And then um, I also couldn't look up whether there what was a juggalo. So I had to ask you both of those things. And I said, and then you said, don't Google it. I said, don't Google it. I'm going to tell you on the podcast. We will show you. And now it's really built up. Everyone in the Facebook group and me, I don't know what a juggalo is, but it better be really good. Which is really a shame (laughs) because it's really not that impressive. I mean, is it, is it like, like a gigolo or like, but that maybe juggles? (laughs) So I don't I, know. My brain's been spinning with all kinds of possibilities. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give you my phone, and if you swipe right on my phone, I have stored here several pictures. Is this Bond's mage tender of of juggalos? Are you tricking me? Maybe a little. <laughs> okay, so there's guys, and they're describe for us and what women. you're seeing. Yeah. All right. There are people in black and white clown makeup, and they have shirts that say Juggalo. I still don't understand what, why, <laughs> why, why are they, why do they do that? So Juggalos, okay, are fans, okay, of the rap group Insane Clown Posse. Oh, okay. And, and there was a character in one of their songs called the Juggalo, and the fans of the band have become the juggalos. Okay. And they wear this clown makeup? All the time. Everywhere. 365 days a year. They do not. No, I don't. <laughs> no. No, but... Well, good for them. So so what would the fantasy Burke nerd equivalent of a juggalo be? Well, that, that's where it came from, because I, I don't know why I was thinking it. I'm just like, what I- like, what is the insanely dedicated... To the point where you are willing to be completely ostracized from normal society. So there's a little story to this, right? Juggalos are just fans of this band. Right. Right. So the Insane Clown Posse is actually the most commercially successful independent music group ever. Like not signed to a label group. Like just DIY band. Nobody's ever had the kind of success that these guys have had. And their fans are like so incredibly committed to the point where, you know, they formed this huge subculture that became to people who are not in it so cult-like that the FBI actually branded them as a domestic terrorist group. And they had to sue the U.S. government to get off their list. Wow. So huge amounts of, you know, drama and all this stuff around Juggalos. And I'm like, what's the fantasy equivalent of that? Like, we have cosplayers, but it doesn't quite get to the same level of of dedication. So I don't know what it is. I was just sort of thinking about it. And that was when we realized that you don't know what a Juggalo is. You know, it's very interesting, the whole thing with, with the Juggalos. And I, I was reading some articles last year about um, the appeal of wearing masks. 
mm-hmm. um, especially en masse like that, you know, the idea of uh, depersonalization and how people feel freer um, wearing masks, especially going out in a group like that. Yeah. A- and I wonder if it's, there's something to that, that shared identity of everyone showing up in the same kind of taking off your own identity and becoming part of this like Borg like well, that is very much entity. Yeah, that's very much what it's about. So the Juggalo subculture overwhelmingly is this lower lower middle class, poor, white, and predominantly rural group of people who have who have attached themselves to this. And what they say about living that juggalo life is that the juggalos are their family. So like they identify with this as their family of choice as opposed to their family of birth. So there's this huge association with the group and being kind of a part of that group and juggalos look out for each other. Also, I think part of it is that they already feel like outcasts. They feel... Like they're not going to, you know, achieve that sort of American dream of, you know, living on Wall Street, you know, with a $200,000 a year job driving a Mercedes Benz. So, so they ain't about no damn J-O-B. They're about being that juggalo, living that life. It's interesting. I actually pulled up one of the articles that I read recently, and this is a New York Times article. And one of the quotes um, that really grabbed me is, At a time when so many are cut off from power and opportunity, perhaps it's no surprise that they're drawn to the garb of a scary outsider who's allowed to tell the truth. Yeah. So I don't know. It's, it's, that isn't interesting. Sorry. I mean, to take a funny joke and make it all like serious and psychological, but, but I do think it's an interesting phenomenon. And we had that at least in the States um, a year or so ago, we had this, thing on the news where people were dressing up as clowns and just lurking around people's neighborhoods and it was heavy in our area too and it was like like kids were going insane these scary clowns and people were losing their minds over this but it was at this time of like this political upheaval and uncertainty and um yeah it would be interesting to see if we could like cosplayers would unite and uh i don't know tap into that like borg Hive mind thing. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, I wonder, what do we have to do as a podcast to get that juggalo life? Like, <laughs> like, what? what is the podcasting equivalent of the juggalos? Well, I, I think, don't know. I don't I have an answer. I think we could wear Econis <laughs> masks. I mean, I like that. I like the Econis masks. We yeah. got something built in there. There you go. That's true. All right. So, Elizabeth, you're known for your street smarts and your quick decision-making <laughs> skills. That's your other wife, Elizabeth. <laughs> don't worry. She gets the bad Buladazi. <laughs> So I'm going to give you a handful of scenarios All right. where you are presented with a person out of the blue, and I need you to quickly and tell me if the person that you are encountering is a juggalo, a gigolo, or Bam Bam Bigelow. 
Okay. <laughs> Lay it on me. Do you know who Bam Bam Bigelow is? Nope. Well, there's a picture of Bam Bam Bigelow on my phone, too. Okay. All right. So, Juggalo, Gigolo, or Bam Bam Bigelow? All right. This person has a tattoo. There's a picture of a man with a hatchet, and he says to you, whoop, whoop. Juggalo. Good. Good call. This person spent two months in jail because the government declared him a domestic terrorist. Juggalo. Good. This person is wearing a black shirt covered in flames and has a tattooed scalp. Bam Bam Bigelow. There you go. This person is 400 pounds. Gigolo. That's the only thing it couldn't be. It could have been Bam Bam Bigelow <laughs> or a Juggalo, but no 400-pound Gigolos. I'm sorry. There could be a 400-pound Gigolo. No, you got to, I'm sorry. You're Don't wrong. Don't discriminate against the Chubby Chasers. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm on. So, okay. This swarthy gentleman introduces himself as Sweet Roy. That's a Gigolo. That's a Gigolo. Okay. This enterprising millionaire is named Shaggy Two Dope. Juggalo. Good. She says her name is Axe Lava. Axe has three X's in it. Juggalo. Good job. By virtue of being female, she would have to be a juggalo of these options. So, this person suffers from anxiety and a heart condition, has four children. He was sued for non-support and... This last fact is important. All four of the children come from one woman. For a second, I thought you were describing me. Um, it's Bam Bam Bigelow. Yes, correct. Okay. This person is smoking menthol cigarettes and drinking Grape Fago. Juggalo. All right, last one. This is the bonus round. Charlie Sheen. Gigolo. Juggalo? He could be Gigolo or Juggalo. So there you go. Excellent game quality. Good. I'm glad I'm glad. That's what we that's what we live for here at Duke and Duchess Enterprises. The uh the No Pants Podcast Network. <laughs> yes. Right? Trademark. Trademarked. That's now, what it's called now. The no Pants Podcast Network. <laughs> Anything else? I got nothing else. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening and putting up with our bulldozy. <laughs> you can find us at the com. You can find us on Twitter at the DND Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess or on our Facebook group, which is the D&D group, if you search uh, for fa under Facebook groups. And... If you like us, you can leave a review on iTunes. You could. You certainly could. If you love us, tell somebody. Pimp us out, yo. Good night. Good night.
So then I says to him, I says, I'll take a dozen of those donuts and a pint of human hair. <laughs> In my day, we didn't have hair. <laughs> We'd wear mops on our heads. You had mops. <laughs> you were lucky. <laughs> In my day, we had to use my little brother to mop the floor. <laughs> and he was grateful for it. It's the only way he got fed. I could do this all day. I know you could. It won't be funny, but I could do it. That's not moving. You're going to have to... You can bring it up, but it can't get any lower. I just want to make it tighter because it keeps bobbing me in the nose. Punched in the face by a microphone. It, it's not going to tighten. You have to wrap the cord around it like a... Then move, move the base further away from you. Just grab it by the base. It'll stop yeah. smacking you in the face. Is it... In? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Microphone problem solved. I can barely you I can barely see you on there. You gotta turn the mic so it's pointed more directly at your mouth. Ugh. Microphone problem not solved. Not solved. Just uh this way. There you go. Then point it down a little bit more. There you go. So oppressive. Point it right straight at your mouth hole. <laughs> That's what he said too. He, he's got a dirty mouth. <laughs> That's why I like him. 